Good afternoon. Uh, on behalf of Hudson Institute's Bradley Center uh, for Philanthropy and Civic Renewal, uh, Kristen McIntyre and I welcome you to today's discussion of a terrific new book uh, entitled The Idealist, uh, Jeffrey Sachs and the Quest to End Poverty. Uh, those of you familiar with the center's uh, panels here at Hudson will note a different format today. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome Pablo Eisenberg as my fellow moderator in the first of what I'm hoping will be a popular and long-running series of Pablo and Bill shows. Uh, Pablo uh, and uh, I both write regularly for the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which we're pleased to say is a co-host of today's event, and they've been advertising this, and folks are tuning in, I hope, uh, at the prompting of the philanthropy, so, so welcome. I hope the prospect of such a series of Pablo and Bill shows strikes fear in the hearts of Foundation CEOs everywhere, uh, but I suspect we're more likely to be viewed as the two old guys in the balcony, Statler and Waldorf, who heckle the Muppets in every uh, episode of that show. Maybe we'll have a logo with our heads uh, transposed. Anyway, we're grateful to have with us for our inaugural episode uh, the author of The Idealist, Nina Monk. Uh, Nina is a contribu contributing editor at Vanity Fair and the author previously of Fools Rush In, uh, Steve Case, Jerry Levin, and the Unmaking of AOL Time Warner. So welcome, Nina. Uh, and I'll, I'll pose the first question, if I may. Uh, you spent, as you note, uh, some six years working on this book, uh, doing the kind of intensive, uh, on-the-ground investigative reporting uh, that we don't see much anymore, and in the nonprofit sector, other than Rick Cohen at NPQ and a handful of folks at the uh, Chronicle of Philanthropy, you never see this in philanthropy. So what prompted you to this monumental effort? Um, I, I, I wonder if I'd known how monumental it was, I really would have done it up front. I, was, I went into it a little bit unaware, as I admit. Um, I started out, the, the genesis of the book was a profile for Vanity Fair magazine of Jeffrey Sachs, which I started working on in 2006. It was published in 2007. And at the time, um, it was not long after Jeffrey Sachs's best-selling book, The End of Poverty, had come out. I'd read that book. It had um, moved me tremendously. It's a very powerful book. At the time, it felt very powerful. It was an important book. And um, it struck a chord in me. I, I'd only been to Africa once before. I, um, I'm very happy to say that I know very little about poverty at first hand. And I had really spent most of my career, uh, before I was at Vanity Fair, I was at Fortune magazine, and before that at Forbes magazine, and I was really a financial reporter um, above all. And so even at Vanity Fair, I had spent most of my time writing about what we now refer to as the 1%. And it suddenly occurred to me in 2006, after reading Jeffrey Sachs's book, that there was something in the air. And I think a lot of us, you know, if we didn't realize it at the time, in hindsight, of course, it turns out that 2006 was a very, very pivotal year. It turns out to have been the point at which the so-called bubble burst, uh, the peak of the housing market, the peak of the stock market. Um, all, there were all kinds of markers out there and, and suggestions that we were at the beginning of a, just a real awareness in the beginning of a cognizance that we now are, are acutely conscious of, which is this growing gulf and uh, potential problems we were going to face between the very rich and the very poor. 
And I felt that starkly when I contrasted the work I was doing and reading Jeffrey Sachs's book and very much wanted to understand this more deeply. And it suddenly occurred to me that there was no story more vital than to understand or to write about poverty. And after writing about Jeffrey Sachs, and specifically he had just launched then something called the Millennium Villages Project. He had received $120 million of funding, about half of which came from George Soros's foundations, to effectively put into practice the theories that he had outlined in The End of Poverty. And um, his idea was that with this money, he would put into practice these ideas in about a dozen villages across sub-Saharan Africa. He would um, give it five years, and the idea being that in those five years, by systematically following his prescriptions, you would be able to lift people, if not exactly out of poverty entirely, certainly onto what Jeffrey Sachs often referred to as the first rung on the ladder of development. And having been given this decisive upward push, people would then, um, on their own, after this five-year project ended, after the money ran out, would then on their own have the sort of momentum to continue the upward climb on this ladder. And so for Vanity Fair, I started out by visiting a few of these villages with Jeffrey Sachs, interviewing George Soros, doing the background work, and that turned into a very much longer-term project and resulted in this book six, seven years later. And that's where we are. Terrific. Thank you. And I'm still alive to tell the story. Yes. Let let me ask uh, one question uh, pertaining to Sachs. Even the most unsophisticated people that do development know that when they do their work, it's going to be affected by issues of uh, personality, culture, violence, uh, corruption, politics, unexpected developments. What is it in Sachs's DNA that prevented him from, being, from taking those factors into account? That's the big mystery when I read that book. So you're suggesting my book doesn't turn out very well. You read it to the end. I, I read it, it to the end. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, wouldn't want to give away the ending here to anyone. Um, you know, when I interviewed George Soros at the beginning of, of my project, um, I, I, I listen, I'm a fan of George Soros's too, in my own way, you know. I have a soft spot for Hungarians, my, my, you know. Um, but um, he said something just kind of wonderful to me. He said, you know... Um, I said, well, aren't you worried, you know, George, uh, George Soros, Mr. Soros, I would have called him, um, about this investment? And he said, well, you know, there is something I am concerned about, and that is that Jeffrey Sachs has a messianic complex. And George Soros, being George Soros, by the way, said, well, of course, I kn- I'm, I- I'm fam- very familiar with this um, <laughs> complex since I myself suffer from it. But he was quite cute about that. But it was, it was, a, it was a comment that really stuck with me because I really do believe that there is, there is a certain messianism that we're talking about here. And uh, certainly in the people that I have written about over the course of my career, you, you see it again and again among very successful people. And there is this idea of infallibility. And it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly powerful. And it allows people to uh, throw themselves into experiments, allows them to try things that I think most of us lesser mortals would never even dare to do. But it also sets yourself up for um, a potentially enormous, enormous failure. And there's a terrible arrogance that's built into it. And I, 
so much of what Jeffrey Sachs set out to do. It, and again, I didn't realize this up front. The book very much follows my own kind of gentle, so to speak, learning curve on this. Up, you know, when I began having just read Jeffrey Sachs's book, and I'm not sure if any of you here have met Jeff Sachs or heard him speak, but he's a remarkably charismatic person. He's obviously a brilliant person. He's someone whose powers of conviction are, are extraordinary. Um, certainly, he's a lot smarter than I am. And um, it's impressive, and who doesn't want to believe that poverty can be ended? And so I think that one very quickly with Jeffrey Sachs is willing, or at least I was willing, to follow him and to believe. And it can be surprising once you really become well-versed in the subject, once you have come to understand the full complexities involved, the difficulties involved, the inherent, uh, what after the fact, of course, appear to be obvious. And you sit back and you say, well, did Jeffrey Sachs not take these issues into consideration? Now, you know, I don't know what to say. I think in some ways, someone of Jeffrey Sachs's conviction, someone who since the age of five is, has always been the smartest boy and then man in the room, again and again and again, um, um, you know, who had tenure at Harvard by the time he was 28 or 29, who at every stage of his life has been the best of the best. I do think that this dangerous sense of infallibility comes into play, and you no longer believe that you can be stopped by anything. And you believe that the hurdles that have tripped up other people are not of consequence to you because you're smarter, better, more capable, um, and so on. And that, I think, is what is known as hubris. So how did it turn out? I mean, I, 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 I don't think it's going to be shocking uh, for the audience to be told the end of the book. I, it's, uh, you, uh, you, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't think the audience will be shocked at the ending of the book. Um, things turned out differently than obviously you had expected. And uh, how was that? What, was, what, was, what were the, the consequences of hubris? Yeah, it was very. It was a very disillusioning and disappointing process. I began the book as um, you know, I, I wrote my proposal to my publisher, for example, saying that I very much hoped the book would turn out well. I hoped it would have a happy ending, and frankly, I would sell a lot more copies of the book if it had a happy ending. I'm quite sure of that. Um, and I was both um, startled and disappointed as the years went by, and as it became more and more evident to me and I think to the people on the ground and to many of the people working in this project that the problems were just compounding and that, um, there, you know, I've, I've compared it in previous interviews and talks to that, that game that some of us played as a child, whack-a-mole. And, and every time um, you imagined or they imagined in the field, in the villages, that a problem had been solved six other problems would crop up. And um, the complexities were so much more enormous, so much greater than anything that, that, that Jeffrey Sachs and his colleagues at Columbia University had predicted. You know, this is, of course, the great danger of coming up with a model in the safety of a laboratory setting. You know, Africa, people, human beings, villages, none of these things are scientific laboratories. Human behavior is deeply unpredictable, um, and, and even more so when you have the arrogance of being Jeffrey Sachs, when you have the arrogance not just of Jeffrey Sachs, of any number 
of outsiders, of um, people who really at their core know nothing about the places that they're trying to help, about the people whom they're trying to help. They don't understand the history. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand much of anything is really the terrible sadness um, that I came to understand as the time went on. You know, who, who were Jeffrey Sachs' advisors during this project? Did he have any, he'd have a team of advisors from Columbia or elsewhere? Who did he um, listen to? Well, certainly there were, there was quite a large staff at one point on the Millennium Villages project itself. Um, certainly there was a lot of involvement in different ways by other NGOs and nonprofits and even the big donors as we refer to USAID and, and the, the English development agencies and so on. There was a lot of crossover and in and out and meetings that went on and a lot of these people's work, of course as any of you who work in these fields know, a lot of it trips over itself and it's hard to get involved in development work and not cross over with other folks. By the same token, I'd say that, um, again, those of you who know Jeffrey Sachs can probably recognize he's not someone whose strongest suit is listening to the advice of other people. Um, you know, this is someone who has very firm convictions and um, pretty well has answers to just about everything out there. And whether he's talking about our national debt, whether he's talking about gun control, whether he's talking about saving Africans, whether he's talking about Thailand, pretty well any subject you give Jeffrey Sachs, he is the reigning expert. Um, so I, I do believe categorically that one of his failings in terms of this project was a refusal very often to listen to people or to take their advice seriously. And I, one of the extraordinary experiences of this book, and those of you who have read this will, will know this, is I was able to sit in on meeting after meeting with Jeffrey Sachs, um, with officials from the World Bank, with officials from the UN, with very top aid development people, people on the foundation sides. Um, and I had the extraordinary um, um, luxury, I suppose you could say, of really being there while Jeff Jeffrey Sachs and these folks sometimes went at each other's necks. I mean, screaming, um, swearing, just really horrible abuse of the kind that I certainly had never seen. And um, it was just kind of astonishing to see how much egos, of course, play a role here, how very rarely Jeffrey Sachs seriously took other people's advice into consideration, how he steamrolled over people on the ground who had worked in these fields for many, many decades, how he treated them with condescension. And it was disturbing because Jeffrey Sachs is a, is a very, very bright man, a very capable man. And it was, it was disturbing to see how rarely he was willing to fully take other people's advice into consideration. And that lack of humility... I think is a very serious contributing factor to failures, not just some of the failures that Jeffrey Sachs experienced, but I think that many of the failures that happen on the ground in the field in development work happen for a lack of humility. Incidentally, just, just so it's clear, uh, we invited Jeffrey Sachs to be uh, on this <laughs> forum. I'm kind of glad um, we've been spared the abuse. But, uh, we did, in fact, uh, send an email to his office. We invited him, uh, or, or we uh, invited him to send a representative uh, to, to uh, discuss this, and, and uh, both offers were declined, uh, just so, so that it's not. And, but I did come across, uh, in one of the interviews that Nina did previously, a, um, 
uh, and I, you'll, you'll find this uh, amusing, mm -hmm. Nina. I'm sure you've, uh, you've had some time to think about it. Uh, apparently, uh, Mr. Sachs sent an email to a friend, which was then forwarded to Nina. Uh, I can't account for Nina Monk's cynicism. It is what it is, but it's not at all the real story, which she, she simply missed. Uh, sorry to say, but it's like Vanity Fair meets extreme poverty. <laughs> well, so be it. Anyway, uh, I, that's, that seems like such a, a modest response. I can't imagine him being abusive. But, but how, yeah, why, how did you uh, mysteriously turn so cynical in the course of this? You know, it's been a, a very, one of the hardest things about promoting this book, which is I've had many people um, say to me, you know, you, you wrote this book, and in the end, um, you've done a terrible disservice both to the poorest of the poor, to those of us who work in foreign aid. Um, you've, you're really exposing something that basically shouldn't be exposed. And even though you claim that you care deeply about the poor and you care about these problems, in the end of the day, you're, you've basically um, you know, made life worse for us. And I was very... I've been very shocked, actually, by those accusations. I've been very shocked by people who, on the left, um, because I think of myself as more left than right, certainly, and I've been very shocked by those on the left who have attacked me um, for the conclusions I reach in this book. And I'm shocked because I guess maybe I'm old-fashioned, and I think that my job as a journalist is to tell the story that I see. And my job is not the job of, I'm not an advocate. My job is not uh, the job of a lobbyist. My job is to be a reporter. And I um, have done and did do the very best I could in this book to report as fairly and as accurately exactly what I see on the ground. And those of you who have read the book will know that I almost never insert myself in this book. I don't offer opinions. I Very often there are pages and pages of just dialogue. I literally spent six years carrying around a tape recorder, um, uh, interviewing Jeffrey Sachs dozens and dozens and dozens of times in VIP waiting rooms in airports, on airplanes, in his townhouse in Manhattan, in his office at Columbia University, um, all over the place. I was in long rides in Land Rovers with him crossing Africa, and at the same time, I did um, what I think really makes this book what it is. I juxtapose that with many, many visits to two villages over and over and over again so that I could report on the ground, so that I could have the kind of access and the kind of understanding for what was really happening in the villages that neither Jeffrey Sachs nor, frankly, from what I've seen, anyone who works in development gets to see. Because what happens far too often in development, whether it's from the foundation level whether it's from the donor um, level, whether it's USAID, whether it's the UN, is money gets allocated to projects. Uh, people might go in once for half a day with their Land Rovers with the air conditioning on and the, you know, the bulletproof UN convoy vehicles and the windows up tight, and they come in and the whole village is turned out and people sing and dance and present them with special gifts. And it's almost unavoidable. I mean, that's really not a criticism. It's almost unavoidable to be an outsider and to come into a small village that is waiting, hoping, praying that you will decide to spend your money on their village. And they've slaughtered a few goats to make sure there's enough food for your visit. And you see nothing. You don't see anything. 
the few people who are introduced to you, who are presented to you, are very likely to lie. Um, I have a charming anecdote, funny anecdote in my book. Um, Jeffrey Sachs's people, of course, would go through and try to take household surveys to understand the people in the villages, how they were doing. And um, at one point, I'm there when one of the surveyors comes through and chats to a woman um, who became a friend of mine, Beatrice. You know, how, how many pregnancies have you had? How many more children do you intend to have? And so on. And Beatrice, with a totally straight face, looked at this nice young surveyor. I think it was an intern from Columbia University. and said, two, two children. So I looked at her after the surveyor left. I said, but Beatrice, you already have five kids. Like, you just, she goes, she sort of shrugged. She goes, ah, you know, we know what you Mzungu want to hear. You know, and I just thought it was so marvelous because she had kind of exposed basically the, the, the bullshit of the effort. At the same time, had clearly demonstrated how smart she was because she knew how the game was played. She knew what we wanted to hear. And she knew what needed to be done to get more money into her village. And that was that. And there was this elaborate dance that is performed. And I forget what the question was or where I was going, but there you go. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> it was, I went off track, yeah. Right. The it's bill, complicated. At this one, why don't we open up to questions sure. and then we can interject. Yeah, and we'll continue to. Yes, yeah. please. Right then. Oh, oh, we have a microphone. Yes, the, the rules are please wait for the microphone. Uh, state your name and your affiliation right, right down here in the front. Right here. And um, speak very briefly. Please, a brief question, not a. Uh, an alternative thesis to the Jeffrey Sachs approach with twelve point plans. I do. Ha I do have two. I do have two questions. Mm -hmm. Two okay. questions. Okay. First of all, could you give me just a, a brief on Vanity Fair, the marketplace that you reach? I know you you, you mentioned that. A brief on Vanity Fair. Wants to know about Vanity Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Speak. Speak directly. Go. Got to hold it. Okay. There you go. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Four score and. No. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about, you, you mentioned that Jeffrey Sachs, you described him as being much smarter than you, and that was probably some humility in your description. But one thing about him, as you pointed out, his weakness is that he lacked humility. So is he really that smart in that sense? And secondly, did you ever write about um, the gentleman that did the uh, Ponzi scheme, uh, Mr. Madoff? Madoff and Milken and uh, all the folks that, uh, is that part of your um, menu, so, so to speak? Well, first, on the subject of humility, I actually really um, believe that the only reason I was able to do this book is because I knew nothing about the subject when I started writing about it. And there's this kind of magnificent, um, I, it's, it's the luxury, really, of, of going into a subject cold and therefore being, having the privilege to ask the dumb questions. And people talk about that, you know, when you're in school, there's no such thing as a dumb question. It is so vital when you're doing work like this because in development work, people so quickly become jaded, start to believe that they really do know everything. And, and um, I think that is part of what some of the things that held back Jeffrey Sachs, which is that in some ways he is too smart to ask a lot of the really dumb questions. Um, because he himself is expected and often does have the answer. And so that helped me tremendously here. Um, yeah, I've written a lot on, on financial scandals. If you go to my website, just, just myname.com, you can read practically all of my stories from Vanity Fair. I've covered finance. I cover also, though, just business in a very general way. It's really just about following numbers. So I've written stories about Harvard's endowment. I've written articles about the Metropolitan Opera because at the end of the day, all those things are about money. And unfortunately, 
development in Africa and poverty and, um, and foundation work and philanthropy is all about money too. So it's sort of in some very loose way fits into what I write about. Not only, but yes. Let me, let me just, uh, following up on that notion, you're you know, writing about business. At the end of the sort of phase one of the uh, Millennium Villages project, there was a, a determination that it was time to turn from what would be considered foreign aid, strictly put, to something like economic development. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, well, just say a word about and, and of course, uh, the reason I ask that is that this is a very common prescription now for uh, nonprofits in America. The big question is, uh, how can we get our, how can we get nonprofits to be self-sustaining? How can we get them to adopt more corporate languages, more corporate uh, structures, and so forth and so on? The, the language of business is, is uh, very much in vogue in the nonprofit and philanthropy world today. And we sort of saw in your book this encounter between, uh, you, know, the, the, uh, you know, the notion of uh, business and you know, the realities in Africa. How did that turn out? What was that encounter like? Did, uh, are, are they on their on the path now to self-sustaining economic development? Um, I, I think there are a couple questions in your in in your question. I think there were there are two issues. One, which which um, we've talked about briefly before, but you know, charity has for some strange reason now has seems to just not be a positive word anymore. People talk about charity as if it's um, something very old-fashioned. In many respects, um, so much of the really best work that, in my mind, that happened, that I saw in the villages of Africa was just old-fashioned charity, and no one likes to use that word. But, you know, when you give a child a, a scholarship to help him pay for secondary school fees, when you uh, uh, build a maternity ward in a, in a village hospital that has no place for a woman to give birth, I mean, that's just old-fashioned charity, and it's terrific, and it has a lot of influence, and it saves the lives of many, many people. That's something very different from what most people talk about now. What's fashionable is economic development. Very few people say, we're in Africa, and we're involved in charity. It kind of runs flat. So economic development is what Jeffrey Sachs set out to do. Jeffrey Sachs did not. The reason why I think that the Millennium Villages Project was a failure is that Jeffrey Sachs did not set out to say, to, to improve the lives of a few thousand people or even 10,000 people or even 100,000 people in a dozen villages. He set out to do something far more ambitious than that, which is probably what a number of you in this room set out to do, which is really to change the tide, to change the fortune for an entire continent and to find a long-lasting, sustainable, to use another big buzzword, scalable, to use another buzzword that I'm sick to death of, um, to, to find a sustainable, scalable way to end poverty decisively. And not just decisively, by the way. His original intention was to do it in five years. Um, that wound up coming out to, to a 10-year period. But that was the big goal. And in no way did he manage to pull off that goal because it is so difficult. You can go into the villages that I spent a lot of time in and I could see at first hand and I can talk to you at first hand about the improvements in people's lives. People are clearly better nourished when they've received fertilizer and their crops are better than they were before. People have clearly have better health when they're given mosquito nets to protect themselves, be protected from malaria. 
people clearly are doing better when they're um, given the money to build a protected water source. Those are all great, important, vital works to sustaining human lives and to helping people to grow into productive human beings. That's something very, very different than making sure that a godforsaken village, you know, really, that these are places that are in the middle of nowhere. There, is no, there are no roads. There is no power. There is no running water. There is no connection to the outside world, and there is certainly no connection to the global economy of the 21st century. And, and so if your goal is to make sure that these people have some way of sustaining themselves and their children and their grandchildren, of so, having some way that they can produce income, that they can have, be gainfully employed, that they can start businesses, that they can develop something that leads to what our ideas of progress are, I, I don't know what to tell you because this certainly is not the solution. Well, Pablo, Pablo being the preacher of the left, I mean, that's, isn't that, that, haven't we just described the progressive uh, model for not only Africa but for America? grand, root cause-oriented, uh, solve the problems once and for all rather than uh, relying on charity? Is it? Well, it reminds me of my old boss, Sergeant Shriver, who said, we're going to end American poverty in 10 years. Right. Um, well, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the answer to the left. There needs to be some large goals, uh, but they need to be implemented with people in mind at the grassroots level, and it's got to be a combination of a national policy and, and local policy. And in a sense, what I, I infer from parts of your book is that lots of people are trying to draw a uh, rigid line between what is charity, namely foreign aid, and what is uh, economic development or, as Jeffrey Sachs tended at the end, commercialism. When in fact, that's not a necessary separation, that both of them working together is probably the right answer. Uh, giving a million uh, mosquito nets to maybe term charity, but if it leads to several indigenous folks setting up manufacturing plants to build mosquito nets, that's economic development. So without one, you don't have the other, and I think there's a tendency now, it seems, you could comment on that, of too many people downgrading charity or foreign aid, partly for political reasons, partly for budgetary reasons, and not, and not acknowledging that both working together are probably the answer. No, I think you raise a big point, and I think there's the, the, the larger point really is one about accountability. And, yeah. and this is really, I think, in so many ways the core of what my book is about, because you know, however much people like Jeffrey Sachs may insist that there is going to be more money for foreign aid or continue to demand more money for foreign aid, I should say. I think most of us who are realists recognize that probably not anytime soon is there going to be a significant uptick in the amount of money spent on foreign aid. So the question then becomes a very vital one. How do we make the most of the money that there is? And I'm not just talking about foreign aid spending at a government level, by the way. I, I really mean whether it's coming from the Gates Foundation, whether or the Hewlett Foundation, or whether it's coming from individual grants to small NGOs that are working in these areas, that the amounts of money are not going to radically change. So it becomes even more important that every dollar we spend is spent well. And that accountability um, is, is essential. And there's just not enough time spent on accountability. There's not enough focus on it. It's part of 
what has upset me uh, tremendously and, and upsets me when people criticize the conclusions I come to in this book. You know, the conclusions that I come to in this book, that um, your money is just completely wasted, is a conclusion that I wish more foundations would be willing to share with their donors and more NGOs. Because the, the truth is, as anyone who's worked in the field knows and will admit behind closed doors, a huge amount of money goes to waste. And it doesn't go to waste because it's stolen. It's not all the cliches. It goes to waste for any number of reasons. It goes to waste because people make mistakes. It goes to waste because you're making decisions sitting in Washington or sitting in New York or sitting in Los Angeles and because you're clueless. And sometimes you just have to admit that you're clueless. And, um, and I, I wish so much, and I think there is some work being done in this area, but it is so rare to go to the website, for example, of an NGO or a major foundation and actually find the drop-down menu for where we screwed up. Because those lessons are as vital, they are as vital as the lessons about where we've succeeded. And otherwise, we, we're just doomed to keep making the same kinds of mistakes. Yes, please. Ruth. My name is Ruth Lubick. I'm a nurse midwife and uh, also a MacArthur Fellow who came to Washington to try to prove that the disparities that the African-American people suffer here are not intractable. Um, w the question I would like to ask you, because of my own experience, uh, is who were Jeffrey's enemies? Who tried to keep him from doing what it was he wanted to do? Because when you change any system, somebody's going to object. And I have very uh, strong experience with that, with trying to make things better for people. And there's a whole other group that <coughs> looks at the business aspects of it. So could you answer that for me? Um, I, I, I think, t to summarize what you're asking, I think what you're talking about is, is sort of the status quo. People hold on very tightly to the status quo, even when it's not working. And, and Jeffrey Sachs, to his great credit, came in <coughs> and recognized um, that there are major flaws in the way development is done in sub-Saharan Africa and in the ways in which we try to end poverty is clearly flawed. Otherwise, we would have ended poverty by now. And um, I sat in on meeting after meeting with him where he was with people who had been on the ground for, for decades, people who had worked for USAID or the, the various European equivalents or the Canadian equivalents and some of the major foundations. And he would really butt heads with them. And I described some of those earlier. The, I would say that one of the things I did appreciate very much about Jeffrey Sachs, and certainly early on, was that he would confront those who were sticking with the status quo. And he'd say, look, you can't stick with the status quo because it's clearly not working. So we have to do something differently. And there was, when you talk about Jeffrey Sachs's enemies, so to speak, I would say that some of the greatest forces that um, slowed him down or prevented him from being able to fully pull off or accomplish what he hoped to were very often people who had been there for, for many, many years. And some of the folks who work in development, you know, they live in, in uh, parts of Nairobi or in other capital cities in, in Africa. They've been there for a very, very long time. Uh, there is a complacency that can set in. I think anyone who's worked with major institutions can see that. And it can be dangerous and it can be suffocating. And it can very much slow down the pace of change and work to stop change in its tracks. Um, and so, yeah, I think Jeffrey Sachs was up against that, and I think that was difficult. I would say that 
in many of the arguments that I witnessed, Jeffrey Sachs's absolute both powers of persuasion, powers of personality, and his um, fantastic ability to reach out and lobby directly to the highest levels of power, both in the uh, African capital cities as well as at the UN and in ca European and American capital cities, allowed him to make far greater changes than most people can. Go back into the, yes, that's good. You have to really hold the microphone okay. right up to your mouth. Is that good? Can you hear now? Yes. Um, two questions. Bill Easterly, did you talk to him and interview him? And Jeffrey Sachs is associated with the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health. Do you see things wrong with that in the same way you see wrong with Millennium Villages? Um, regarding Bill Easterly, I really set out. Um, I've read every one of Bill Easterly's books. I've read, for, you know, for the purpose of this book, I probably read, you know, 100 books about development. I, mean, I desperately for a while actually thought if I just kept reading, I would finally have an answer. I soon gave up on that. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I was thinking. But I also, I, I will tell you that during the course of actually reporting the book, I purposefully did not interview those who I knew were Sachs antagonists, Bill Easterly being, of course, the most famous. And I did that for a good reason. I did not want afterwards anyone to say to me, well, you know, you just got suckered by someone on the other side. And, then, and I'm deeply not an ideological person. And I didn't want to get caught up in the ideology of development and the ideology of poverty. And there's a lot of it, as some of you in this room, I'm sure, know. And I wanted instead just to say, you know what? I came into this as a reporter who knew nothing. And I just reported. And I came to my own conclusions based on what I saw, what I heard, what I recorded, and what I learned along the way. And I didn't want individuals to be swaying me. Uh, your other question was a more important one, macroeconomic on health. Um, you know, one of Jeffrey Sachs's most important contributions to the area of um, development of poverty really was a lot of the early work he did in the area of health. And for those of you who are not familiar, Jeffrey Sachs did something quite remarkable. I, I, I interviewed Paul Farmer on this subject um, early on, Dr. Paul Farmer. It, Jeffrey Sachs took his great macroeconomic brain and background and applied it to the area of, of healthcare, and particularly humanitarian health. And he, and he put numbers to bear when it came to saving people's lives in, the, in global health. And he said, which is alluding somewhat to what, to what you brought up earlier, Pablo, that you know, a mosquito net isn't just a mosquito net. It allows people to be productive in a certain way. And when you're spending money on global health and on saving people's lives, you're not just, that's not just charity. That is an investment into the economic output of a nation. And he managed in a brilliant way to use those numbers to make a very convincing argument that that kind of foreign aid isn't just, quote unquote, charity. It is something much larger. It's imperative to helping the economic output of a nation. And Paul Farmer said to me, and it was such a, such a lovely quote, he said, you know, Jeffrey Sachs completely changed the way we approached global health lobbying in particular. We had been using millions of dollars, thinking that was like a lot of money to be asking for. And Jeffrey Sachs just came in there dismissively and said, what are you doing talking in millions? Start speaking in billions. Because really, relatively speaking, these are tiny sums of money. You know, 
we're talking about the spending of the Pent a single day spending of the Pentagon, for example. And, and these are tiny sums of money that can change uh, the lives of millions of people. So, yes, thank you for bringing that up. Speaking of Bill Easterly, incidentally, May 7, mark your calendars, May 7, right in this room, we'll be uh, taking up Bill Easterly's new book, The Tyranny of Experts, which uh, you can imagine from the title. Uh, bears. Could you repeat the title? The, the Tyranny of the Experts. The Tyranny of Experts, May 7. Bob. Bob. Bob Woodson, Center for Neighborhood Enterprise. Um, the, I was at a conference at Roundtable Bill when a young woman who's now running her father's uh, foundation described the father as coming from overseas with a sixth grade education and built a million, billion dollar business. But yet, when she described the people who were going to run her, his foundation, talked about the number of PhDs they had hired. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The question is, why do, why do we not apply the principles that operate in our market economy to the social economy? If, uh, if, if we had these kind of failures in the market economy or in sports, the coach would be fired or the CEO would lose their job. But no one seems to lose their job for failing in, a, in the social economy. Any thoughts on that? Bob, I, 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 I wish I could help you. I mean, I, I, um, I, I think I do say at one point in my book, frankly, that if the um, same sort of uh, scrutiny was applied to this particular NGO that was applied to publicly traded companies, for example, you'd be in serious trouble. I have uh, uh, point after point in the course of my book where I recount problems with the financial reporting, problems with the data, you know, data collecting uh, for a lot of NGOs, for a lot of nonprofits, is deeply problematic. It's just not good, and a lot of it is rubbish, frankly. And it can be very, very difficult to get to the bottom of those numbers. And it is an ongoing problem, and it's certainly one that a lot of people talk about. And some headway has been made. There's been a lot of progress thanks to the availability, for example, of financial reports on the Internet for for um, philanthropic enterprises, but I find it disappointing, to say the least. I'm always shocked by how out of date the numbers are, how hard it is to get the numbers, and worse of all, how people who run nonprofits seem to recoil uh, when you ask or demand hard numbers. Um, so I, I certainly, on the part of financial accounting, I, I agree with you entirely. I, I think there is a double standard. I'm just, I'm going to defer on that, Bob. But, <laughs> Nina, Nina did, did, did Jeffrey Sachs build in any uh, accountability mechanisms in the project? Uh, you mentioned at the end that clearly there was a total lack of transparency. What sort of accountability did he hold to um, himself? Did he think about evaluations? No, there, I've, listen, there's tons and tons, reams of data produced by the Millennium Villages projects. If you go to their website, uh, you can find all kinds of things. There are a couple questions. How reliable is the data? Um, how, you know, let me, let me get to the, cut, cut to the chase here. If you're a nonprofit and you depend on people to continue to give you money to remain in business, so to speak, to, you know, you've got 10 
dependent employees, 100 dependent employees, 10,000 dependent employees, depending on the size of your organization. What is in your interest to have the greatest transparency of your numbers? I mean, the SEC requires that a publicly traded company have transparent numbers. People are caught. They're sometimes fraudulent. They're thrown into jail on a good day. But we do the best we can to keep those numbers there. What, what, who's the watchdog agency for NGOs and for nonprofits? And the number of small foundations in particular, and you know, the, the, the number of these, these organizations is growing exponentially. I mean, it's really astonishing. And it's almost impossible to get really good data out of them. And the, just as the, the woman I, um, I mentioned earlier in the village in Uganda who just looked right at the surveyor and lied about how many pregnancies she'd had and how many children she intended to have, so too what, what I saw happening in the case of the Millennium Villages Project, but I've seen happening in other cases, you know, you, you, you begin increasingly only to report the good news. There's a bias selection. So because you want your donors to be happy, and because you want the money to keep coming in from your donors, and you have to. And, and you start to really, I think, believe in some ways, like some people who run Ponzi schemes start to believe, that you're just holding off. You're doing the best for the people in the villages. You know, if you tell your donors, this is project's not working, let's, let's just um, pull the plug. You know, you have abandoned all these people in your village. So probably on some level you believe you're doing the right thing by keeping it going, by fudging the numbers a bit, or at least by not being fully transparent about the numbers. And you maybe hope if you're just given another year, you can just hold out and things will suddenly start to look up. And so I, I think there are a lot of complicated reasons, both good, both bad. I don't, certainly don't think it's outright fraud that leads people to manipulate numbers. I think it's a combination of, of ignorance, of denial very often, of hopefulness. Um, it, there are a lot of problems. And I, I think if we were all more honest about the failures, it would help tremendously. So what's the answer? More journalists like you, more watchdog groups, more legislation demanding accountability? I mean, how does one better the situation? That's a very good question. I mean, I think to some degree it's just going to have to happen um, um, because the individuals decide that it matters and because people are no longer embarrassed to say, we made a mistake and that it's not held against them. Um, because, no, there's never going to be enough watchdog agencies to make sure that every single foundation and NGO out there is reporting its numbers properly. I think some of it is really about changing the way we talk about our charitable giving and to acknowledge failures and not to be embarrassed by them and just to be willing to really be forthright about what we can and we can't accomplish and to stop believing that uh, we can... Everything we do winds up being some heroic act of, of success. Yeah, the, uh, I should point out we did actually do a panel not too long ago on learning from failure and so forth uh, here, and there was a there was actually a group from Canada that does have a website, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's a development. It's an engineering group, and it, but they do uh, international work, and uh, they uh, they talk about. It, I mean, it's explicitly devoted to learning from failure. You know, the part of the problem is we're not just talking about numbers and financial statements. You're also talking about being on the ground and really seeing what's going on when you're, when you're dealing with development work in poor countries, in the middle of nowhere. And who can afford to do the kind of work, for example, that I did? It's very, very hard. It's excruciatingly difficult. How do you actually send someone in there 
on the ground to get as close to an unbiased view as possible and to be able to spend the amount of time and to get to know the villagers. I, I was invited um, out to San Francisco not long ago to talk to a major foundation there, that just an internal discussion. And they really were fretting about this, and they were very honest. And they said, you know, we give money to a lot of these villages. We do some of the same work, actually, that Jeffrey Sachs has been doing, and we don't know how to evaluate it. And we know, you know, we show up, and it's our top people, the funders, and they throw up sort of a party for us, and we know we're not really seeing what's happening. And what do we do about this? And I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how you really can ever know what's happening in a village because it took me six years, and I'm sure I've only got, the, you know, the tip of the iceberg even then. Yeah, let me just underline a point that you make in the book, and that is, as you just said, there are reams of data. There, there is no end of, you know, statistical descriptions of what's being accomplished and how things are moving along and so forth and so on. And the folks back in New York City, right, are reading this data and assuming that, I mean, this is how, this is what data is for, of course, is to enable you to be in a remote place and understand where your money is, uh, you know, what kind of effect it's having over here in this, in, in, uh, in Africa. Uh, so there's, there's no end of numbers. It's all there. And yet, when, and this is, this is what's kind of really, uh, mind-blowing about the book. When you go to these villages, you know, and the numbers have been so glowing, what you see is something very, very different. Uh, if, if you could just, the description of Dertu, I think, uh, is, is striking. The, you know, the numbers are showing everything is, Dertu is the one in The in Somali Kenya. village. Yes, yeah. the Somali village in Kenya. Uh, the, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the numbers for the specific measures probably showed a good thing. Well, I was going to say, and, or, or what about the fertilizer in Ruhira? I mean, that's mm -hmm. a perfect example too. You know, the two the two villages that I focused on one is uh, on the border of Somalia and Kenya. It's ethnically Somali, but it was geographically located is geographically located in Kenya. The other village is in southwest Uganda, and um, it's a, a village that is largely agricultural. Uh, banana is their main uh, crop, a, a, a banana they call a matoke, a cooking banana, a green banana. And Jeffrey Sachs, one of the, the main prescriptions, interventions outlined both in the End of Poverty and in his project, the Millennium Villages Project, is the fertilizer and high-yield seeds. And many people have talked about this. These are not interventions that are unheard of. Um, this, the idea here really is to bring to Africa what happened in the Indian um, continent, for example, um, subcontinent a long time ago, Mexico and so on, which is to bring the Green Revolution to Africa. And some of you in this room may even be involved in such initiatives. And by any account, uh, sub-Saharan Africa agriculturally is just in a state of utter despair. You know, yields are abysmal. And they're abysmal because no one uses fertilizer, very few people, I'm speaking in gross generalizations. Um, in the many of the villages, certainly that I was in, the most advanced technology gets is the use of a hand hoe, you know, on a good day. And so one of Jeffrey Sachs's initiatives was, well, you know, this is crystal clear. We go in, we give people fertilizer, um, we give people uh, improved seeds, and almost overnight, certainly in the matter of a single growing season, in a matter of a few months, you see the most extraordinary results. And in the village of Ruhira, I saw it firsthand. Uh, you went from having, in, the, in this case, they were growing maize and corn, uh, not, not corn, maize, uh, corn and beans. 
and they gave them fertilizer and improved seeds for both of those. And from one growing season to another, there was a bumper crop. It was extraordinary. I was there. We had parties. There was dancing. There were celebrations. You know, suddenly it seemed the promise of everything that modern farming has brought to us would now be happening in this village. And then, bingo, <coughs> within a week or two, uh, the village was confronted with the terrible reality of what to do with this excess crop. What do you do? What do you do with bags and bags and bags and bags and bags and bags of corn and beans? Because now everyone's fed. Everyone's really happy. You have no warehouses to protect this stuff from, from rats, from any other kind of, kind of bugs, all right? You have no roads to get it to market. You have no buyers. Well, now the fellow who was running the organization for Jeff Sachs on the ground starts scrambling to find buyers anywhere. Who the heck is going to take this stuff? Right, corn. I mean, who really wants corn? It, they don't even like corn in southwest Uganda, by the way. They call it prison food. I mean, they really don't like corn. But we've, by the, by the brilliance of our decision-making back in New York City, have decided corn is the perfect, perfect um, um, thing to grow. So now they scramble, and lovely David Sariri, who is one of the main characters in my book, does manage to make a deal to sell a few bags of this grain to some folks in neighboring Rwanda. But he can't get anyone because the cost, when you don't have any roads, no one has any trucks, the cost of just getting a truck from the capital cities, from any of the bigger cities, up to this isolated village up in the mountains, if the truck is not completely destroyed by the time you've done that trip, and you actually make it back, any profits you might make on corn are completely wiped out. You just can't make money. And it was, you know, this terrible tragedy. And it, and, and it, it seemed to me really to go back to this whack-a-mole incident. This is the kind of thing that happened again and again, which is you, you came up with a solution, an obvious, immediate, it's self-evident, fertilizer. And then you go, Jesus, there's a whole host of other things that need to be in place. And I had an, uh, a really um, kind of a an epiphany of sorts one day when I was lucky enough to sit in on a meeting with the president of Tanzania, Museveni, and thanks to Jeffrey Sachs, I followed along Jeffrey Sachs in a meeting with Museveni, and, he, and there was Jeffrey Sachs in this meeting with the president. What's that? You, yes, I apologize. And Jeffrey Sachs was in the meeting with him um, in the, the state capitol, beautiful state house, and he was going on and on about the success of this, uh, using fertilizer in this village called Ruhira. And you know, Mr. President, and if you can just do, roll this out across the country, and if you can give bags of fertilizer to everyone, and I'll help you get the money to, to give out this fertilizer, and it'll be a huge success, and your economic productivity will go up X-fold, and this will transform the lives of your people. And Museveni just, there was this dead silence at the end of the meeting. And there's Jeff Sachs, rah, 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 you know, magnificent as always. And Museveni just stops at the end. He's rocking back and forth in his chair. And he says, you know, uh, Professor, um, thank you for your input. But you know, um, these countries of Africa, we are not like other places. Now pause. We have no markets. We have no political cohesion. We have no roads. We have no rail. And he got up and ended the meeting. And it was just this sort of, um, you know, there was suddenly the reality interjected into the situation by the president of the country in itself. So. All of which you saw because you were on the ground doing the reporting, and yet back in New York City, right, the data showed, ah, you know, huge increase in... Uh, 
in uh, agricultural output. Well, this Ergo, is exactly it's it. It's a success, right? Well, they kept reporting. The Millennium right. Villages Project kept reporting bumper crops. They continue right. to yeah. this day when you go to the website. One of their great success stories is the bumper crop, and it is a success. It means people are well-fed when they weren't well-fed. There's nothing wrong with a bumper crop. It's just it does not mean that you can take it to the next level. It doesn't mean that there is now employment or that there is a, 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 an ability to sell these products. And these are not cash crops. Even when they thought they were growing cash crops, they couldn't find buyers. And, and this is the great difficulty. How do you translate that low-hanging fruit, as Jeff Sachs himself would call it, and how do you take it to the next level? How do you really change people's lives and change the, their children's lives and change their grandchildren's lives? Let's go to the audience. Yeah. Yes, up here. Hi, my name, my name is Yulia. I work for the Center for Global Prosperity here. Um, I was really, since this is a philanthropy center, I was really impressed at the massive amounts of donations he received from individual donors and from corporations to jumpstart this whole thing. Um, and I just, I was, I'm only halfway through, but I, I also, I just got through the Quizmos, the, the marketing. Um, yes. Yeah, and how he sort of shut that down. I, I, I just want to hear a little bit more about, you know, w how, was there no sort of, and like Soros sort of taking it on as a bet, you know, people were funding this, and I'm just wondering what, where the accountability was from the, from the donor side. Maybe there wasn't any. Maybe they just didn't. I think it's a, a great question. But I, I think actually George Soros puts it better than anyone in my book because I asked George Soros exactly that question. He had just given Jeffrey Sachs $50 million. This is back in 2006 when it began. And it was by far and still remains today by far the single biggest donation that the Millennium Villages Project had received. And I went to George Soros's office in Midtown Manhattan and I said, you know, um, don't you feel this is an enormous risk. I mean, what if it's just a disaster? What if nothing goes right? What if the project doesn't work out? Um, and George Soros said, he should have shrugged, and he said, you know, um, um, the worst thing that happens is I've just, quote, lost $50 million to humanitarian aid. Um, I've helped a few people. But in the small off chance that Jeffrey Sachs is right, I've just done something extraordinary, and the, the exponential growth of my investment um, will be immeasurable. And so I think there is that element, I think, among people. I, I'm unfortunately not in a position to have ever been able to afford giving $50 million to a cause I believe in, but I think that if you can afford the possibility for downside, if you're a person of risk, I actually think it's kind of wonderful to be willing to take risk on the possibility of the upside, which in this case it didn't turn out. But yeah, and I, I think it's hard to know about this, the accountability, as you say, until rather further along, at which point you just don't give more money. And that's really your only way of voting, of showing, showing what you feel about the project. So, yeah. Sorry, I don't know whether yeah, no, that's I shouldn't fine. be doing sure. right? no, <laughs> um, Ken Meyercord, World Docs. First, let me thank you for what sounds like a very honest book. I know it took a lot of courage to write it. And uh, don't let the criticism get you down. You've done a tremendous service for all of us, including the wretched of the earth. Uh, wasn't Jeffrey Sachs associated with the Harvard group, a group of consultants who associated with Harvard who went to Russia after the collapse yeah. of the Soviet Union to instruct them in free market Disaster. capitalism and ended up in such blatant pilfering of the Russian economy that even Harvard had to disown them? Mm -hmm. If I got that right, <laughs> apparently I did, 
Uh, that raises the question, is there more than meets the eye to the Millennial Village project? Especially since with Mr. Soros's involvement as he's done very well in ending his own poverty. Um, I've, I have a, 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 not to force you to have to buy my book, but I do, have, I do have a number of chapters that deal with Jeffrey Sachs's background back when he was really known as Dr. Shock for his shock therapy um, treatment that he uh, imposed on a number of countries, both successfully in some cases and decidedly unsuccessfully in other cases. Um, but yes, it's the same, it's very much the same person and it's kind of fascinating when, when you look at Jeffrey Sachs is to see that metamorphosis from someone who was really held up um, on, by the right, especially for helping to, to move countries to stabilization after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union to someone who then became so closely associated with the, the other political view. And I discuss that a lot in my book, so I'm going to defer force you to read about it instead. <laughs> Thank you. Back there. Now we're all calling. Yeah, why don't we this yeah. Yes. Terrific. Thanks. Hi, my name is Annette Brown and I work for the International Initiative for Impact Evaluation. And you've been talking a lot about all these data and how do we use them to measure accountability and you so on. You have the answers, yeah. I hope. I, I don't, <laughs> but, but I, what I want to say is that we're going to get some answers. So uh, one of the beefs that the more academic development community has had against Sachs from the beginning is that even though he was collecting all these data from the villages where he was, he was not willing to conduct what we call an impact evaluation. That is research that compares to a, a counterfactual. Because, of course, all the other villages are getting some kind of development interventions at the same time as well. And so a few years ago, the UK Department for International Development said, and I don't know if this mm -hmm. was too recent to feature in your book, they said, we'll give you a lot of money to implement Millennium Villages in northern Ghana. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we, DFID, are going to hire an independent evaluator to conduct a very rigorous impact evaluation, including quantitative, so the survey and the things mm -hmm. that we can measure, yeah. but also very in-depth qualitative evaluation of the project over a five-year period. And in addition, we're going to hire an independent peer review group so that the independent evaluators are being reviewed on a continual basis <coughs> by independent reviewers, which happens to be my organization. Um, and so it's still going to be a long time before mm -hmm. we have the answer. And Earth Institute hasn't necessarily been real happy about this. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that it's happening. the donor said, we're going to invest a lot of money in kind of maybe not proving once and for all, that might be a bit extreme, but trying to finally do the kind of rigorous accountability analysis that can answer some of these questions rather than throwing around before and after corn crop data and things like that. I'm so, I'm I didn't so know glad you brought this up. No, this is, you uh, thank you so much for bringing this up. Um, I have a, a, quite a bit um, of my book, or certainly one long chapter, is devoted to the whole dispute it, among academics in particular about the way data was um, looked after, the way the project was evaluated. And as you say, I'm sorry, what was your first name again? As Annette says, you know, one of the greatest controversies for, for academics in particular, for people who know about this, know a lot more about this than I do, is that there really wasn't any way, when, when Jeffrey Sachs would say, for example, the, the health of, um, or incidence of malaria transmission, to take an easy one, has gone down in our villages by X percent, it was very hard to know what that meant in isolation. 
because the fact of the matter is that all across Africa, thank God, uh, the last five to ten years have shown remarkable improvement among the poorest of the poor. And in country after country after country, statistic after statistic, we have seen improvements. We've seen sharp reductions in maternal mortality rate, infant mortality rates, number of children in schools has gone up sharply, malnutrition has gone down. I mean, really fantastic results. And uh, many of the economies of sub-Saharan Africa are now growing at faster rates than our own. Not that that's that difficult, but, y you know, <laughs> nevertheless. Um, and so what people very quickly, a lot of the critics said, pointed out, was that when Jeffrey Sachs would talk about the accomplishments of his village, how much of this might have happened without Jeffrey Sachs being involved at all. And this has become, as you say, it's, a, it's, a, it's not exactly what I focus my book on, but I, of course, spend a good amount of time talking about it because there were so many academic studies written and so many, and, and, and in fact, there was an entire study that Jeffrey Sachs and his team submitted and had published in The Lancet that had to do with reduction of mortality, child mortality rates in the villages, which turned out to have to be retracted because the data was, uh, was incorrect, was poorly reported. And so this project has, among the more anecdotal flaws that I discuss in detail, has been deeply flawed and undermined by problems with the data. And people who know much more about the way data needs to be done rigorously are, are trying to sort through this. And with any luck, Jeffrey Sachs and his folks are claiming that by 2016, there will finally be more rigorous and better data, some of which is connected to this village in, in Ghana that DFID is funding. End of lecture. <laughs> Report back for, for volume right. two. Yeah, Bill Deedle, please. Uh, just, just got, yes. got to wait for the microphone. Here we go. Although we can hear you very well. Yes. <laughs> Is that better? Yes. No. Bill two, Deedle. Two questions. Bill Deedle. Uh, two questions and one comment. Did you interview Paul Collier or Amartya Sen? And if so, what did they have to say about what Sachs's uh, conclusions were? Second point is by way of a comment. We've heard a lot about evaluation, the undependability of the data being collected. But you yourself have testified to a form of evaluation that has proven immensely accurate. A human being spending time on the ground with the people who are being evaluated by numbers crazies. And all that evaluation money costs a fortune, and not one nickel of it got into the hands of the people they were evaluating. Can I read Mr. Sen's comment? <laughs> yes. Is that all right? Of course. Are you ready for this? It's a blurb. It's yes. a blurb, a March of Sen, and he, he must have written it before he read it? Uh, anyway. <laughs> You know, that's what reviewers do all the time, isn't it? <laughs> Nina Monk's book is an excellent and moving tribute to the vision and commitment of Jeffrey Sachs, <laughs> as, as well as an enlightening account of how much can be achieved by reasoned determination. Well, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, yes. It is an enlightening account. <laughs> no, no, it is. <laughs> Says the author. Um, you know, I have the same response as I had to the, the fellow who earlier asked about Easterly. I did not interview C 
Collier. I didn't interview Sen purposefully. I read, I read of course, um, I really respect Collier. I, I liked his book, The Bottom Billion, Billion in particular. I thought it was terrific. And I quote it actually in my book. Um, so, you know, I read everything they've written that was pertinent, but I did not interview them. I've never met either, either man. Um, as to the other question, no, I, of course, I, I, I love what you said. I mean, I am a firm believer that, you know, drop me somewhere on the ground and I will get to the bottom of the story. Um, and that would probably be true for a whole lot of other journalists out there, other folks who, who know how to listen and how to really take notes and how to just watch. And sometimes I would be in a village for days and days and nothing happens. And you know, part of good reporting um, by anyone, not just journalists, part of good reporting is, is listening and, and waiting and waiting and waiting. And you don't sometimes know when the story is going to happen. You don't sometimes know when finally someone is going to trust you enough to reveal what is happening. And I would stay in people's huts, and I would share meals with them, and I would go out and herd camels with them. Well, I didn't herd. I watched them herd. Um, and I would put in, you know, it, it, it's a lot of it's just kind of old-fashioned hard work and logging the hours. I shouldn't say hard physical work. I don't do any physical labor, but... It's just hard work. It's gaining people's trust. It's what therapists, I guess, do on some level. It's getting to the point where someone finally just is ready to leak some document to you, for example, or tell you everything, or give you the real account of what's happening on the ground. I think part of the problem with NGOs and nonprofits doing that kind of reporting is it, you know, how do you pull that off? How do you pull that off in a realistic way, village by village, project by project? I, the same foundation that asked me to come and speak to them in San Francisco last week, you know, they were addressing, they had exactly that same question. What do we do? Can we hire um, investigative reporters, for example, to go and try to do that work on our behalf? How do you do that kind of collection of information on the ground? So, but thank you for the question. Yeah, Pablo, how does, how does our sector do? It does terribly. The question I ask is, how about poverty in this country? Um, do you find that reporters and people are digging in to find out what's really going on in communities after communities where um, both nonprofits and philanthropies operate? Look, I think for the, to start with the obvious top line comment, we obviously do a better job reporting on poverty in America than we do in reporting really on the details of poverty in poor countries because we have more reporters on the ground here. You know, that said, there are a tremendous number of hurdles. One of the hurdles is that, I, as, to speak as a journalist, there is no budget anymore for the kind of serious investigative reporting that is required to see these projects through to fruition. It's hard work, it's expensive work, uh, it's complicated work. And I am immensely grateful that my publisher, Doubleday, was willing, probably wouldn't happen today, but when I signed the contract, it was 2007. The market hadn't completely collapsed yet. <laughs> but I am tremendously grateful to Doubleday for having given me the kind of advance that allowed me to travel the way I did in Africa. And we're not just talking about plane fares or hotels. We're talking about security detail, translators. Uh, you know, these are dangerous and difficult places to travel to. And you, they involve having drivers and cars and guards and, uh, you know, armed guards. And I mean, there, there are layers and layers to this kind of reporting. And it is 
excruciatingly difficult to find organizations anymore who are willing to fund this kind of reporting, and we're seeing less and less of it. And I think in the United States, although you don't face some of the same barriers in reporting on poverty, I'm still rather astonished at how infrequently we get the kind of, um, what do they call it when you're reporting on, the, on, the, on, the, on wars and you get to be in bed? Is it in bed? Embedded reporting? Yeah. You know, I sort of yeah. think to myself, why don't people do that? I mean, I, w I would love to. I just, it's just not something I've done yet. Why don't we have that kind of reporting on poverty? You know, every once in a while you do. Um, the New York Times happens to be my home hometown paper, so I'm biased, but they sometimes do these extraordinary bits of reporting where a reporter has spent months following around someone who lives in poverty in the outer parts of, of New York City, for example. But I, I think that kind of reporting is immensely powerful and important and vital to informing our public discourse on what should be done and how to best advance the, the needs of the poorest people. Yeah, the, un, unhappily, the New York Times, who, who did have a very good reporter on, on this philanthropy beat and who would do the sort of reporting on foundation initiatives, i.e. not, not metrics-based evaluations, but, but just, okay, the foundation a year ago announced a big initiative right, to, what's happened to, to do it. in this neighborhood. Now, let me go down and just look around and see what happened. Stephanie Strom. Yeah. But unfortunately, of course, the Times decided it couldn't support that kind of well, not that it, it wouldn't support, not that it, it could afford it. There is, there is, by the way, a great reporter um, called Amy Costello, who's, right. who's become a friend of mine, who is a long NPR radio reporter, and she does a lot of good reporting on, on charities. So she's, her podcast is worth following. By the way, did, has Jeffrey Sachs uh, announced any uh, attempt on his part to look at American poverty? To, has he come out with any grandiose schemes or even narrow Good schemes? question. I mean, I, he certainly talks a lot about America's problems. His last, or the two books ago, was really focused on domestic issues, and so it has become more and more a focus of his. I don't think he's had any book, I know he hasn't had any book since the end of poverty that's had that mm -hmm. kind of impact. Um, and a lot of his message has, since his talks on, really, on Africa, a lot of it's kind of become blurry. And so I don't think there's anything where he's, he's managed to make that kind of headway or had that kind of impact on the domestic front. Well, part of it is he said, according to your description, he sort of concluded that even this grand vision that he had wasn't grand enough, right? That, mm -hmm. it, that, that global conditions were... were uh, How everything that, was interconnected. Exactly. Everything is interconnected, so you can't solve any... Give, and, of course, that, that's the path to this sort of grand theoretical visionary insanity, right? If you can't do a little bit of good in front of you, uh, uh, you, you've got to tackle it all at once, and you've got to solve all of the problems behind Well, the as, as Bill Easterly would put it, the tyranny of experts. I think that's what you has hit the title of his May next 7th, book. tyranny of experts. <laughs> yes, right, right. Yes. Okay, we have time for a couple more questions. Yes, please, right here. Name, affiliation, speak directly. Sure. My name is Jackie Aldrete, and I work for an international NGO called AFSI. And um, from our experience, one of the solutions or one of the ways, uh, alternative ways of doing development is um, working with local organizations and really seeking what we, what we like to call authentic participation mm -hmm. of people and organizations. In your experience with the Millennium Village projects, did you see any missed opportunities in that regard or... I don't know. Did you get any sense of how 
they might have otherwise gone about, you know, implementing ideas instead of, you know, the top-down kind of approach instead of something else more, <coughs> more bottom-up. Did you get any sense of that? Well, I should start by saying that I have never met anyone working philanthropy who doesn't insist that his or her work is bottom-up. You know, right. no one ever says, we are top-down. Right. So, um, you know, um, that aside, you know, I think Jeffrey Sachs's organization, I think the Millennium Villages Project, did uh, valiantly attempt to make this a community-led organization on many levels. There were the leaders of the projects in each of the villages were, if not immediately local, they were certainly people who had, were from the general region, at least from the country itself. They were usually PhDs, and so they were locals who spoke the language, very often actually right from that community. But, you know, fundamentally, you, you, it's, it's such an, a difficult, difficult um, objective to pull off. Because by definition, you are outsiders pushing in with money from the outside. And I had someone just, I was giving a talk at, in Austin last week, and someone uh, spoke in the audience just very knowledgeably. He said, you know, I worked with, in the Peace Corps, I think it was, he said, in some very remote village in South America, I forget what country. And he said, you know, we just kept trying. We're going to be hands-off. We're just here to sort of help, but it's all going to be community-led. And he said, you know, finally in the end, it's like you're looking at your watch and you realize you've only got three more months till the project term ends and the money's about to run out. And you're just like, God damn it, I'm going to town to find the truck and I'm pulling this in and I'm planting the crop. And you, you, you know, they're just, it's in some way, it's almost impossible not to impose. You're, you are leading the project and you can keep insisting it's community-led, it's bottoms-up blah, 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 blah. Yes, we do the best we can. We know that that's the right approach. How do you pull that off? How do you pull it off when you, in the end of the day, the project is coming from you, it's funded by you, how do you do that? And are we conning ourselves to pretend that it's bottoms up when it is not? I don't know. Let me know when you have the answer. Pablo, you were, Pablo, you were with no. In Africa? You, but you were in Africa. Right. On the ground doing this kind of thing. Is this what you did? You got grabbed a truck and planted the crop? No, I was in a foreign service, oh, where no, which was even more top-down. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, that's okay. Listen, I love, by the way, that, sorry, I'm so sorry to, to interrupt. Ruth's about to ask another question. Um, but, but these organizations now, I mean, I just think they're, I, I don't know whether they work or not, but these organizations now that are just about direct giving, I'm sure yeah. some of you know this. I mean, you know, I just love the concept. I've read a lot of studies. It appears to, to work very well. But the idea is just purely, you know what, just find people in need and hand them 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 100 bucks. I mean, I, I know people have talked about doing it in our own cities, but in, in, I've looked at the studies of how it works in sub-Saharan Africa, and there's um, an economist at Columbia, Chris Blattman, who's looked specifically how it works in Uganda with an organization called Give Directly. And his studies, at least, have really demonstrated that people know what they need to spend money on. And they're often far more effective and they waste far less money when they spend their own money on things. And, and to me, intellectually at least, that has tremendous appeal because it eliminates the, the great white outsider, too often white, outsider telling other people what our ideas of progress are. And to me, that's the danger. That's what scares me. 
I'm sorry, to go back to. Well, I tell, <laughs> I, I tell you what, let, in, in, we're, we probably should cut her off at this point, but what I would like you to do, if you could, uh, you've, you've described Jeffrey Sachs, uh, and in spite of your description, I suspect probably every young person in this audience would love to be Jeffrey Sachs, right? I mean, this is an amazing, well, there's, there's some <laughs> head shakes, but, you know, what's not to like about this, right? He's tenured at Harvard at the age of 28. He has, as you point out, an $8 million townhouse on the Upper West Side, <laughs> paid for by the university, one of Pablo's favorite topics, where the universities spend their money. They buy townhouses for Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, what, what, what is the lesson uh, a young person should take away from this, sort of thinking that maybe Jeffrey Sachs represents, you know, the pinnacle of, your, of, of this profession that they're engaged in? Here they are in the nation's capital. They're working for NGOs uh, to do the Jeffrey Sachs world-transforming thing. What, what would you say to a young person in this situation? Be humble. Humility goes a very, very long way. And I, I, I also believe strongly, and, and you know, I'm, I'm only a journalist, and so maybe my view of the world is, is a limited one. But I think that one in life needs to take pleasure in incremental and small accomplishments. And too much of our culture and too much of what we write about, what we talk about, what we praise, what we bow down before is about the great big, the great vision. And sometimes when you look back, it's the small things. It's the, the um, measured, small, narrowly focused accomplishments that add up to something enormous in the end. And I, I feel, I try to do it in my own life, that it's important to value those accomplishments and not to let them be overshadowed by people who just yell louder and um, stomp their feet more aggressively than other people. You know, you know one of, the, I think, the enormously important lessons of your book uh, applies to so many of the failures among nonprofits and philanthropy here, and that they're attributable to supreme egos who are not collegiate, who think they can forge their own paths, and not listen. And so there's a real lesson, it seems to me, for some of our uh, both young and old leaders in this country, not to mention the top-down government folks. But uh, that is one of the periodic problems that, that we face. And the final thing, in your book you describe Jeffrey raising enough money to have another five years of that Millennium Project. Can you tell us what's happened in, in the second half of that project? Are things um, not working out? Are there a few? I, you know, we don't, it, it's, we we're not going to know for a couple more years definitively, but from what I can tell, from what my sources are telling me on the ground, the people I continue to communicate with in the villages, including, strangely, on Facebook now. <laughs> you know, you got me. Um, you know, I, the, the project is clearly winding down. Um, the project has very little, very few teeth left. The very fact you can just sort of see by doing research, uh, searches in the press, very few people speak about it in any kind of a serious way. Certainly among uh, development experts, I think there are few, if any, one left out there who doesn't work for Jeffrey Sachs who still supports this model. 
Um, so I would say that although certainly Jeffrey Sachs himself has not yet declared it to have been a mistake, um, I think most people out there at this point have, are disregarding it, and it's it's going to be kind of um, left in the in the annals of, of of missteps that will, with any luck, uh, help lead us to better ways in the future. Good. I, I, you know, I know it's going to happen. Ten years, if not less. Uh, yeah, we're going to try it all again. Some, someone, right. some, some new PhD is going to say, "I have this great idea. What we need is this integrated approach with this to rural development." Yeah. And it's not like it was done before. This is a whole new idea. And we're, and we're going to scale it up. That's, that's great. Okay. It's sustainable. It's, and it's sustainable. Yes. <laughs> there you are. Anyway, so let's uh, let's thank Nina Mock for. Her. <laughs> That was terrific. Thank you.